Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Today, we continue with our third episode in a series called Creating Environments for Flourishing. The series is based on the paper of the same name we've released with Georgetown University. It was drawn from a pair of convenings with higher education leaders across the country, including 31 college presidents. Today's guests were speakers at the second convening in March, and today's topic is one that they spoke to then and can speak well to now. It's about innovation and measurement in college student behavioral health. Dr. Daniel Eisenberg is the director of the Healthy Minds Network and the principal investigator of the Healthy Minds Study. He is also the Professor of Health Policy of Management in the Fielding School of Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be talking with you today. We're excited to get started. Our next guest is Dr. James Hutchak. Dr. Hutchak is the creator and director of the UVM Wellness Environment, otherwise known as WE. He is also the Chief of Child Psychiatry and Director of the Vermont Center for Children, Youth, and Families at UVM's College of Medicine and Medical Center. Jim, welcome to you. It's uh, really nice to be here and be able to talk to you and Dan today. Agreed. So let's get started, gentlemen. I think I'll start with you, Daniel. Your annual survey of college students is widely referenced and relied upon by experts and administrators concerned about college behavioral health. So in understanding what students are reporting in your survey, you often talk about what they still need. And that includes more innovation, right? As I've heard you speak many times about, both on the service delivery side and the prevention side. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. The need for innovation comes from two two sources. First of all, there's a huge need to do better than what we're currently doing. And that's clear in the data We're seeing fairly significant trends where distress is rising, mental health is declining among college students. And even though a lot more students are using services than before, we're still seeing large numbers of students at high risk for suicide or with other mental health concerns who are not accessing services. So there's this huge unmet need that just seems to be growing. And traditional approaches, which would be, for example, hiring more counselors, while while still important, clearly, that doesn't seem to be enough right now. The other reason that I see a lot of potential for innovation is the fact that college campuses have so many positive resources that could be tapped. And, and so many talented professionals, practitioners, organizations, all the organizations and people are basically there to support student well-being. And there's a lot of talent and energy. So it's sort of a good laboratory, good conditions for trying new things, testing them out, documenting whether they work and advancing our knowledge about how to address student well-being. Thanks, Dan. I, I think we'll talk a little later about the need to, to measure those approaches for sure. But speaking of innovation, our next guest, Jim, runs the WE program at UVM. So this has been a widely reported, well-documented, innovative program in college student behavioral health. And I'm excited for you to tell us more about it, Jim. A little bit of a description for our listeners. The wellness environment is a neuroscience-inspired, incentive-based behavioral change program 
focused on health and well-being. So as I understand it, Jim, we as many things at once, right? It's a dorm, it's a program, it's an education, and it provides students with a living environment in which they are encouraged to make healthy choices. So tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. It's impossible not to start with the fact that the WE program evolves from a program uh, called the Vermont Family-Based Approach, which I developed for the care of children and adolescents who were struggling with emotional behavioral problems. It became quite clear to me that the traditional models that we use to uh, help young people was insufficient, almost in the same ways that Dan is saying, and important, uh, not enough child psychiatrists, psychologists, and counselors, but even at a deeper level, some question about whether or not what we were doing was helping. So many years ago, armed with genetics and longitudinal studies, 50,000 twin pairs in the Netherlands with my colleague, Dorette Bumsma, we started to investigate if it wouldn't be better to take a population-based approach that says the following, all children and adolescents are facing stress, stress is experienced in the brain, and that our individual variation and vulnerabilities put us at risk, all of us, to be sad, bad, anxious, inattentive, quirky, and naughty. So we set out to assess the vulnerabilities of young people, claim that all health comes from emotional behavioral health, uh, in, in a sense, the brain health, and how might we promote healthy brains? So in our clinic, if you came, Marjorie, with your child, not only would you and your partner be assessed, uh, your child would be assessed, and we would treat your child with music, exercise, mindfulness, yoga, sleep hygiene. At the same time, we help mom and dad overcome their struggles. This is a a 25-year-old program. It's a joy to work in. And uh, after seeing data from Daniel and others about the incredible suffering that was going on in college campuses, what I did is I took the Vermont family-based approach, removed parents, and said, let's apply it to college students. So real quickly, the first part, neuroscience inspired, is there such beautiful evidence right now about how the environment impacts the genome, epigenome, the structure and function of the brain, and then your thoughts, actions, and behaviors, and that all health comes from the decisions we make, exercise or not, drink or not, be kind or not. We decided first we create a curriculum that fast-tracked all of this incredible neuroscience into the minds of college students so that they would have the knowledge, skills, and attitudes, and we argue the responsibility to understand they need to take care of their brain, and we're going to give them strategies to do it. The residential part of WE is we then built a contingency management incentivized-based approach residence hall where the students, armed with an app I developed, are not only encouraged, but they're paid through a cryptocurrency to practice yoga, mindfulness, fitness, neural nutritive eating habits, good sleep. So in the environment, you get yoga instructors, mindfulness instructors, Peloton bikes, gym passes, all up front. And each time you exercise, you'll get what we call we coins. Each time you do yoga, you get we coins. It goes into a we bank. You can take that to the we store. Every night, we measure their emotional, behavioral, and well-being health. And that is crunched into a data set that we're using machine-based learning to study not only the impact of life, on a college student and his or her their ability to deal with stress, but the vagaries of how college life goes. So that's the UVM wellness environment. And Marjorie, as you know, it's been accompanied by massive reductions in substance use and abuse, conduct violations, improved school retention, improved GPA. So it's a little experiment that, that we've enjoyed. And now we enroll a thousand freshmen every year into the program. 
Jim, one of the things that I think is so great about the program is its popularity among students, right? I mean, it could be looked at as sort of a corrective program to sort of get at bad behaviors, and it has actually had the complete opposite effect on students, right? I understand you have waiting lists to get in. I had the pleasure of actually going and visiting. It's a beautiful spot. It's wonderful to see. There's tons of positive energy. Just talk a little bit about why you think that is the case with students. They're really embracing this. Well, I have an enduring belief that young people, uh, given the chance to make a healthy decision, will do so. We pride ourselves at admitted student visit days and other interactions to tell students we're for everybody. If you've suffered with substance use and abuse problems, emotional behavioral problems, even psychoses, we want you in the wellness environment. If you're a yoga practitioner, if you're a varsity athlete, we want you in the wellness environment. And the great thing is, is that by creating this community or this culture of well-being, And by no means am I saying that everybody follows all the guidelines, but by starting this culture of well-being, it's sort of cool to be well. There is a contingency. We use something called contingency management, that if you have alcohol or drugs or paraphernalia associated with alcohol or drugs, what we call neural triggers, if you have any of that in the environment, you'll be removed. You won't have any other punishments. You stay at UVM, just go to another residence hall. What people have really become surprised about is that every year, 98% of the young people who live in our environment are able to follow those rules well enough to not be removed from the environment, which shows this really wonderful thing that these young brains are amenable to change that neuroplasticity is at its peak. And if we provide them an environment where they can make healthy decisions, uh, they'll choose to. I'd like to turn to and ask Daniel to expand a little bit more on your first point around innovative programs like Jim's. Jim has done rigorous evaluation. And and I might add, just for our listeners, your evidence in terms of the Healthy Mind Survey, Daniel, is being used by practitioners and college administrators across the country. It is the sort of backdrop for so many innovations in college student mental health because you've been able to report on what students are really telling us. So talk a little bit more about the concept of really measuring these kinds of interventions on college campuses. Why is it so important? And then I guess my second question, Daniel, is why is measurement so important and and how do we get at some of these really interesting new techniques that we're trying? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I'll start with the question, why is measurement important? And I would say to expand on that, it's not just measurement, of course, but it's actually communicating the results effectively to the people who would use them. And so I think measurement, first of all, is used in an internal way. And by internal, I mean an organization or campus needs to monitor their own outcomes and see, are are we actually having the intended effects like Jim's doing, is he, is he accomplishing the goals of his program with his program? And if not, or if there's some areas perhaps where the measures are not as good as you hope, then could the program be refined or tweaked or improved? The second is to be able to communicate to others, to other campuses, and in, in, in the case of colleges and universities, that certain programs are working or other and other programs are not working, or, or they're working in some ways, but not others. So my kind of vision, I think a lot of people in the field share this vision, is that when a program like Jim's has great outcomes, everybody knows about it. And, and certainly a lot of people do know about the wellness environment at Vermont, and th- thanks in part to the Marjorie uh, 
the, the Mary Chris, sorry, the Mary Christie Foundation and, and other organizations that have been sharing, helping to share the good news. But I still think we're at a state where while a lot of people might know about some bright spots, they, they don't kind of know about them enough. It's not salient enough to kind of break through the day-to-day challenges that everybody's working on on their own campuses to actually stop what they're doing, pause, and and actually think about what well, could we do this? Could we do that program? Could we replicate that success? Or what would it take to do so? So I, I think we still need more infrastructure at a national level and beyond international to be able to easily see what programs are working the best and how might our campus get some support in implementing those those programs. That it's important to say here that of course the Jed Foundation has been doing a lot of important work in this regard. They they've been providing consultation through their Jed Campus program and helping hundreds of campuses self-assess and make improvements. What I've kind of been thinking about is to kind of go even a step further or to help Jed and other organizations and what they're trying to do is could we distill the research and evaluation evidence so that it's even clearer and more complete. And part of that's going to take required campuses to other campuses, not not just Vermont, but other campuses to collect rigorous evaluation data and to share it as widely as possible. The second issue of the challenge, I'll just say in short that when you're talking about kind of a public health approach like Jim's program, where it's holistic, it's got many dimensions to it, many health behaviors are being addressed. It's at a community level. It's not just individuals. It's not like a drug, you know, pharmaceutical that you give or individual counseling that you give to some individuals and not others. It's challenging to evaluate because you have the unit of analysis, so to speak, is is the entire population or an entire subpopulation within a campus. So if you wanted to do a rigorous trial we're comparing the experimental group to some control group because that's important to have that comparison. You want to know, well, what would have happened if people had not received this intervention? That's what the control group is providing. Then you need entire, you ideally you'd be able to randomize entire campuses or entire kind of blocks within campuses of people. And that that's just challenging. One concrete example, what we could be doing more of is to carefully track the pre and post outcomes for, for these large-scale programs. And then when we do that, also identify a reasonable comparison group of students, whether it's within the same campus or maybe some similar campus. And, and during that same time frame, track similar outcomes that we can compare, get some sense of, well, what would have happened if the students had not received the program? That sounds like a great approach. My question is, knowing, and you guys work within higher ed, Knowing the sort of irony that you can't really get anything done in an institutional setting unless you show the evidence that it can be done well. But the other point of working within higher ed is it's not an arena where a lot of collaboration takes place across campuses or, or typically has not been. It sounds like that's still a challenge. And if I'm hearing you correctly, what we really need to do is work together and across campuses for this to really be able to be a national effort. Jim, I know that you've been approached by many other colleges on how to do this. So when you think about creating a platform to scale we for other colleges to be able to provide this terrific kind of approach on their campuses, you need to think of a lot of things, including sharing the measurement around that. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly. It's a Actually, a joy to hear Daniel speak because we have real good kappa on our concerns and our, our thoughts on how to move forward. 
Daniel, in our We App study, half of the students involved in the study live at UVM but are not in the wellness environment program. That's great. Still colored by an ascertainment bias if I chose to or, or not to be in the wellness environment program. But they're impacted by the fact that they get the app and the incentivized-based behavior change as well. You can see even that, certainly wonderful data on interactive tech and voice therapy shows. Just tracking your behaviors often leads to improved behavior. So inspired by Daniel's comments. Marjorie, uh, although I also like Dan's comment about the Marjorie Mary Christie Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to change the name to that. I think that's great. <laughs> um, but the, but the, the reason I say that is in some ways, Marjorie, you know, these over 100 universities who contacted me, you know, I'm the chief of a very, very busy clinical division and I you know, still have my funded research. And you sort of bullied me into saying, um, let's talk about dissemination in a practical way. So I'm working to look for 10 schools who want to join us in a wellness coalition to take this to the next level in the very near future with an idea by the spring learning from a group of 10 universities, the kinds of things that Daniel's talked about, about measurement in different environments, measurements in different campuses, what works, what doesn't work, so that the subsequent semester we could offer educational institutes to, uh, if you will, from a physician point of view, infect other campuses. Keep in mind, as physicians, we have an oath to do no harm. And one of the, the things I'm most proud about we is it follows that oath very, very tightly. And while we work through the process of innovation and behavior change, doing no harm feels pretty good, especially when you're doing a lot of good. But the emphasis has to be on the fact of something both you and Daniel talked about is the, the behavior change has to start first with an institutional behavior change. The decision has to come from on top, and then resources have to be made available to support this. God knows the evidence is there for why we should do it. But if presidents and provosts and chancellors say, yeah, we should do this and sends off a cadre of individuals to do it who are not empowered, then progress is difficult. So putting together a set of invitations to ask 10 schools to join us, learn from each other, and then roll out an educational institute. That's really exciting. Daniel, I'll throw it back to you in terms of what Jim is describing. What is the role of institutions or groups like yourself in studying this and being able to sort of add a complement of evidence-based measurement around it? Well, I think I'm optimistic about the potential for campuses to work together in large groups because there are, as you mentioned, there are organizations, not just ours, but many organizations that have been able to pull together large groups of campuses to look at innovation. And so, you know, our Healthy Minds Network, we've done some research studies with, in one case, we did it with 20 campuses around the country looking at mental health first aid. And and more recently, we're working with some collaborators on a trial that will probably involve around 30 campuses looking at the impact of offering online therapy to college populations. So I have no doubt that Jim, with his exceptional program, is going to be able to pull together a cohort of whatever size he needs. And the program he's talking about, of course, is, is very complicated to implement. So that's probably the biggest challenge. I imagine that, as you mentioned, that the buy-in, the resources required, it's not just like a, an app that you hand to students. It's so much more. But I do think that there's ACHA, there's the Jed Foundation, there's AU CD. There's a lot of national organizations that have networks and, and have a 
history of pulling together large groups of campuses. So not that we've solved everything, but I think there's there's precedent for what we need to do more of. Even sharing best practices, correct? I mean, I know that sounds a little bit um, less scientific than I know that what Jim and you are doing, but it always sort of surprises me how little we know about what's going on in this area at other campuses. So even getting some more energy and some more best practice sharing out there would probably be a good thing for everybody. And I can't, I can't think of a better practice than the we environment. So that's really exciting, Jim, about taking this to the next step. Best of luck with that at the Marjorie Mary Christie Foundation, which I like we will follow up on that pilot program because that is exciting. And and also, I'm sure Daniel will be watching and looking at it as well as your own terrific work on this, Daniel. Any last words from either of you on this conversation or on this topic before I let you guys get back to your busy days? Jim, if, if you could include maybe a school or two in California, because my, my daughters are 11 and 9, so they'll be in college before too long. And I would love for them to stay close to us, but also to be in the WE program. <laughs> oh, I wish that I could have, Jim. I'm I, I'm too old for that. But I will tell you, every parent wishes their kid could go to the WE program. So that's a testament to you, Jim. That's very sweet, Daniel. And, and let's do it. I do want to not end on a kind of a grim note, but I, I want to make sure that everybody understands just what's out in front of us, what the playing field is. Uh, a group of uh, close colleagues and I recently using uh, four of the top TikTok influencers currently out there measuring the well-being of Generation Z, sent out a short survey for us. And in 10 minutes, we got 64,000 responses, which, of course, made me feel bad for my entire research career that it only takes 10 minutes to get 64,000 responses. But 97% of them said they're struggling under incapacitating stress, anxiety, and sadness and they don't know how to deal with it. And so what I'd like college campuses to understand, that these young people are coming to us already under a great deal of stress, impaired and needing help. It's not being caused by college. It's what they're bringing with us. So I, I think we need to double down on what we're doing and what we're thinking for their well-being. Thank you so much, Jim. I can't imagine that a more important topic right now as we think about everything that the students are going through um, in their with their mental health and everything that's impacted that over the past seven months or so. And I know there's some good data on that that Daniel, you've provided as well as Active Minds. This is a really tough time for students, and as Jim points out, this is layered onto what they've already been experiencing. So great point and great work that you both are doing. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs. The MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. And please tune in next time for the next episode of Creating Environments for Flourishing.